0: The overall theme for our summer scholar uh, is four modern approaches to living a life of meaning. Tonight's topic is I, Thou, Martin Buber, relational living with the other. Tomorrow at lunch, remember upstairs at the, um, at the school, Tarbut Torah, is Herod Granger, my rabbi, Rabbi um, Soloveitchik. Uh, and the topic is between cosmos and community. And then we've got two more topics. Let me say a few words of introduction of who you are so people know and then we'll get started. Do you want to start doing the handouts while I do the intro? Do you mind? Okay. We've got handouts, but we really have about one for every two people, if not three. So please um, share. So the,
1: uh, Page one and then two and three
0: come over. Okay. It's going to be very confusing, but their are pages coming all over the place. Who is Michael Fishbane? That's what they wanted to know this afternoon on the boardwalk. And this is what I will tell you right now. Professor Fishbane is the Nathan Cummings Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Chicago professor and uh, teacher of David Malman. Where's David? David took a course with him. And I believe, David, you're one of the people that for years have asked that we bring Professor uh, Fishbane to Orange County. So please thank uh, David. I think that he's... He, uh, Professor Fishbane, not David, is the author or editor of over 20 books and hundreds of articles in scholarly journals and encyclopedias. Among his many works are Biblical Interpretation in Ancient Israel, garments of Torah, Essays of Biblical Hermeneutics, The Kiss of God, Spiritual Death and Dying in Judaism, and The Exegetical Imagination, Jewish Thought and Theology. His recent books include Haftarot, Biblical Myth and Rabbinic Mythmaking, and Sacred Attunement, a Jewish Theology. Uh, Professor Fishbane is presently completing a comprehensive commentary on the Song of Songs. Have you finished that yet, or is that still in the works? <laughs> Song of Songs. Okay, that's a big book. Recipient of many scholarly awards, Professor Fishbane has been a Guggenheim fellow and three times was a fellow of the Institute of Advanced Studies at the Hebrew University. In 2005, he received a Lifetime Achievement Award for Contributions to Jewish Scholarship from the National Foundation for Jewish Culture. Thank you. He has been a visiting professor or visiting fellow at several major universities here and abroad, including Harvard, Princeton, and Stanford University, as well as the Hebrew University of Jerusalem and Oxford University. He's a board member and advisor for many academic journals and scholarly publications and is presently a member of the National Advisory Board of the Templeton Foundation for Religion and Philosophy. With that, I hand the lecture over to you, Professor,
1: and thank you very much for joining us from Chicago. Well, it's a very great pleasure to be here, and I particularly want to thank Ari Katz for the kindness of the introduction, kindness of the overall invitation, uh, and all the wonderful kindnesses that so many people in the community have extended to Mona and myself. Extremely grateful. Um, I hope that the papers are coming around, so I'll say a couple of over, words about uh, of overview um, just until all that is happening so that we can start. Um, many of you have heard of uh, William James, the, uh, the great psychologist and philosopher of religion. And uh, James famously said over 100 years ago that uh, many of uh, the great uh, thinkers, important thinkers, usually had one thought or one intuition. And that that intuition was a generating intuition for their whole lifetime of thinking. Uh, and sometimes it's very important to try to distill from the great thinkers, or the important thinkers, what was that particular insight, what was that generative thought that catapulted uh, all of their um, thinking. And I've chosen um, four ideas, four thinkers, four persons who represent four major moments in the 20th or the beginning part of the 21st century of what it means to live a life of Jewish meaning across the spectrum. Each one of them was challenged by something very different in their historical environment, something very different in their Jewish world, and represent different forms of syntheses of what it means to live a Jewish life and to live a life that's not closed off to the entire range of Western and beyond Western culture and civilization. Um, and I chose uh, four to represent different particular moments, uh, not only because their thoughts are generative and they opened up different things, but they represent different moments. Let me just give you a sense of the four and why I chose them, and then we'll turn to Martin Buber. Um, so, the- so the first uh, is Buber, and Buber uh, was born in 1878, so he spans from the end of, of the 19th century into the 20th century. He dies in 1965, and he particularly represents the great move of cultural Zionism, the move of, uh, of religious humanism, the attempt to regenerate Judaism in conversation with the history of Christian mysticism, Um, Chinese thought uh, and many other various types of uh, currents of thought. He actually began his studies at the University of Vienna in the history of art. And he is particularly known for his dialogical thinking or his thinking about dialogue and speech thinking. Um, But Buber particularly represents a type of Judaism that is not observant. It's a commitment to the Jewish sources as a source of spiritual renewal. And he comes from a family of distinguished scholars, particularly most famous was his grandfather, Solomon Buber, who was famous for editing midrashic and rabbinic texts. So he comes from a certain open, intellectual, critical environment. And although he was not himself observant Buber was exposed to the critical study of Jewish sources. So his yichis, or his pedigree, comes from a certain form of Enlightenment Jewish thinking. Rabbi Soloveitchik represents the revival and the challenge of a renewal of orthodoxy, particularly in America. He comes to America in the 40s, and he's particularly exercised about trying to renew a a vibrant, new, orthodox Jewish life uh, in America. And he represents a type of Judaism that's descended from a very different pedigree. His pedigree comes from the highest level of Lithuanian Talmudism, the Soloveitchik family famous for their Talmud method that we'll talk about more tomorrow, the brisk method, a very analytic method. But he represents strict halachic orthodoxy, although himself too will be open to the massive changes in the Western world and received a PhD from the University of Berlin in ethics. The third thinker represents a very different kind of pedigree, and that will be Abraham Joshua Heschel. Heschel comes to America after the Holocaust, and Heschel represents the revival of a neo-Hasidic style of spirituality because he comes from the highest echelon of the Hasidic aristocracy. His descendant, he's a descendant of one person who was called the Abderab, the rabbi of Apt, one of the great Hasidic dynasties. So when he comes to America and he sees the waning and the formalism and the meaninglessness of Jewish life in the United States, he tries to revive Judaism through the infusion of Hasidic piety but a very specific kind of neo-Hasidic piety as we will see. And the fourth, uh, which I will pick up on um, material that I've written in my book Sacred Attunement, represents a person who was born in America who has been influenced by the preceding three thinkers. But there hasn't been really a Jewish theology since, Buber, well, since Heschel was writing in the early 1950s. So those 50, 60, 70 years in which the crisis or the revival of American Jewish life has gone through various changes. And I wanted to give you some indication of another way of responding to the particular challenge of American Jewish life. Through uh, the work Sacred Attunement. So, let me first uh, say a few words about Buber so you have a sense of his life, and then we'll turn to his important idea I and thou, or I thou, because the two come together uh, exactly. So, as I mentioned, Buber was born in 1878, he's born in Lemberg near Vienna, he goes to the University of Vienna and he becomes immediately enthralled with the history of art and the history of medieval Christian mysticism long before he becomes interested in Jewish subjects. He becomes a major player in the Zionist revolution but of a very particular moment he was very upset about the turn to political Zionism by Herzl to the degree to which it wasn't drawing on Jewish sources. So he withdraws from the early Zionist movement in the 1890s, and he begins this massive study of Hasidic and Rabbinic sources as a way of re-generating a spiritual content to the Jewish renewal movement. And that's the Jewish renewal movement of the turn of the century, 1900, 1910, and so on. At a certain moment in Buber's life, Buber develops the theory or the thought of dialogue. We'll talk a little bit about the prehistory of this, but in the early 1920s, particularly under the influence of the great philosopher Franz Rosenzweig, he's invited to come to the Frankfurt Lehrhaus, this revolutionary place of Jewish learning in Frankfurt, which wanted to revitalize Jewish learning for people like yourselves, intelligent people, different backgrounds, in which there's a breakdown between who's a teacher and who's a student. Everybody comes with life experience, everybody comes with knowledge. Some people come with a little bit more textual knowledge, but they become this interactive fructification between the two levels. And Buber gives this astonishing series of lectures before I and Thou appears, in which it's called Religion as Presence. Some of my teachers were present there and they were astonished. Why? Because he said, Don't look to the past. Now, what Jew doesn't look to the past of what the history of tradition was? Don't look towards the future. Don't anticipate a future. Look to the present. Reality and religion and God and meaning, if they're active anywhere, are in the immediate presence. So he gave these lectures called Religionals Gegenwart, religion as presence, as immediacy. And that immediacy transcends any particular Jewish um, uh, involvement. At that period of time, Buber and Rosenzweig under the inspiration of a Christian publisher in frankfurt undertake the translation of the hebrew bible and they see this as a way of exemplifying and teaching the philosophy of dialogue of being spoken to and responded to in living conversation and for them the bible represents that cultural moment of a voice that speaks and a person who has to listen. Buber begins this with Rosenzweig in the 20s. Rosenzweig dies a premature death uh, in the late 1920s. And when Buber completed this in 1962, Gershom Scholem stood up in Jerusalem and he said, this is the greatest monument of German Jewish intellectual culture but there's no German Jewry left to appreciate it. Buber's impact through many of my teachers begins to happen in America in the 1960s. And as we'll see, Rabbi Soloveitchik and Heschel also had this transferred impact into America in the 1960s uh, and helped foster the Jewish uh, renewal uh, movement. We'll come back to some of their, uh, his particular life and his ideas, but I wanted uh, to begin by helping us see these thinkers through their own thoughts and their own ideas. And so if you have your sheets or you're sitting next to someone who has one, take a peek over. I will make reference to the text so we won't read them through all, but you'll have them to take home and to study. Now, Buber later in his life recorded the following memory that he has as a child of 11 years old. And he spent the summers with his grandfather on this great big estate and he talks about, as it says here, how he used to go frequently into a barn and to stroke this animal, this horse that he saw, this which he talks about, I must say that what I experienced in touch with the animal was the other. So pay attention to this word, the other as something different, the immense otherness of the other, the animal who's the other, which however did not remain strange like the otherness of the ox and the ram, but let me draw near to it. And I stroked the mighty mane and felt the smooth-combed times astonishingly wild, and felt the life beneath my hand. Notice he's already recording this early memory of being in touch with reality, of making contact with reality, and it's not yet persons. He talks about in his dialogical thought, he begins with the animal world, the natural world, it will include the world of uh, nature, and then persons and God. And he says that he felt the vitality palpable on his skin. So he's remembering himself as what was the thing that turned him towards the thou. And he says, I felt in this elementary relationship of thou and thou with me. So this first moment of his recollection is the thou is outside of himself. And it makes a claim And it makes an immediate, touching, palpable claim. And then he says that at one moment, he became self-conscious. And he became aware of himself touching. And he withdrew a little bit from that moment. And he felt that the animal recoiled. And he says, at that time, I considered myself judged. For Buber, as we will see, relationships are primary. Relationships of immediacy are primary. And he remembers this as a primary formative experience in which self-awareness or self-consciousness distances himself from that and there's a break between himself and living reality. So now something becomes other. It becomes an it. It becomes a thing. And his life will be devoted... To overcoming the thingness of things, the objects of things. How does one return to a world of immediacy, immediate contact, to break down what people say the subject object difference? I am here, my I, you are there, you are a you or an it, you're an object, and there's a distance between us. And Buber said that primarily we're in relationship. And that relationship has to be recovered, but how do we do it once we've gone through the whole process of becoming self-aware and critical and aware that many parts of our life have to be critically and used critically as in a critical assessment? The second text, we won't look at carefully, but I'll just mention, he refers to himself a little bit later, walking down a mountainside. And it's very important to hear his personal voice because what Buber is trying to say is, it's the personal voice, the personal expression, which reflects the deep content of who we are. And these second layers of philosophy and theology are things we put over that, but we encode within ourselves these primary moments. So he's saying he's walking down this mountain and he leans with his staff and he touches a rock. And he immediately feels contact with the rock. And he says that that moment allowed him the insight of what dialogue was, of what speech was, of how one makes contact with the other. And that in that contact, there is a transformation of the self. He says, I touched it and I found myself there too, where I found the tree. So as opposed to that first experience, where there's something outside the person that comes to the person immediately, here he's saying, now we reach out and we touch something. And in that touching, there becomes something that he calls this inclusion of life, that he felt that in touching that tree, it gave him an insight into the life of dialogue. That is to say, when I speak to someone, I include them into my reality and their reality becomes my own. So much for these two primary memories. Now let's turn to the page two and here we see Buber at the very beginning of I and Thou, the great work he writes in the early 1920s electrifying Europe with this new form of thinking. Now we have to put this in a little bit of context. The crisis for Buber, as the crisis for many people at the end of the 19th century, was the beginning of industrial and technological civilization. It means the beginning when people were being treated impersonally. It was the beginning when impersonalism was taking over. People were not living in small communities, Many of the old sociological studies of that day begin to talk about what it means now to live in a city, a city that's impersonal, that's connected, that people are drawn together maybe by newspapers, but they're not connected by immediate contact with another person. And they developed this notion of this fear that religion wasn't answering the question, sociology wasn't answering the question, and people, were feeling like objects in an object world. For Buber, people who were just collecting experiences and seeing things as it or other, were just collecting the world as a series of objects. But he calls in German, Erfahrung. That means I'm just going through the world and I'm just collecting all kinds of experiences. But they don't have any real impact upon me. As opposed to those kinds of experiences which are transformative from within. So now he makes this electrifying attempt to how do you overcome the subject-object difference? Me and there's something out there. And he, this is how he begins. And this is the core of his I-thou thinking. We'll see how it unfolds. The world is twofold for man or for a person in accordance with his twofold attitude. Let me just read this and I'll unpack it. The attitude of man or a person is twofold in accordance with two basic words that he can speak. These are not single words, but word pairs. And one word pair is I, you. Another word pair is I, it. And even if you substitute he or she for it, it is an other. So he says, what does that mean? It means that when I enter the world, I immediately am engaged in the world in relationship, in connection. My connection is either that it's me and you, in which case there is an immediate personal bond in which your presence impacts me and we enter, enter into this immediate encounter, or I stand back. But I can't say that my I is totally separate from the world. That's what he'll say in the next part. You have. My I is always part of something that's being bound. I am responsible for the way that I engage in the world. So for him, the I you and the I it are basic words but they reflect attitudes towards life. It's the way I either engage personally in the world or impersonally in the world. What Buber will transform his thinking is that our Engagement in the world has to be totally personal. Look at in the third paragraph. There is no I as such, but only the I of the basic word I, you, and the I of the basic word I, it. When I say I, I mean one or the other. And when I say you, I mean either you or I mean it. In other words, I am the one that determines how I engage in the world. And that moment of engagement is an act of intention. It's an act of decision. It's an act in which I can immediately encounter you or let your presence as outside me, this other, impact upon me, and I respond to it with the totality of myself. Or I pull myself back, And I simply see this thing that's happening, this other thing that's outside me. So he says, when I confront a human being as my you and speak the basic word I, you, he or she is no thing among things nor consists of things. But that person becomes a totality in my presence. That's the core of what Buber is saying. That I, as soon as I open my eyes, as soon as I enter a situation, the world comes to me and I come to the world and I either allow that to have a totality of an effect upon me in the present moment or I pull myself back and make a distance and a separation in which case the person or the thing is like an object to me and I stand back. Now we'll come back towards the end to the crucial question. There are lots of situations in our life in which we are engaged in a double way. That is to say if I'm a teacher or if I'm in in an act of friendship, I'm not simply engaged in some kind of total mystical absorption with another person. But I know something about that person. I have some critical awareness of that person. And Buber had to later in his life absorb the notion of how do I keep thoughts and ideas about that person or that situation, the person I'm trying to help, the person I'm trying to deal with, in mind and yet relate to that person in an immediate, total, full manner. Now, in this life of personalism, this life of living a personal life, Buber then says that is another way of understanding God. We can't turn God, he says, into an object. We can't turn God into a concept. God, he says, if God is anything to me, in Buber's terms, God is the eternal you. He is that element of being that can never be turned into an object, that can never be conceived, that can never be objectified, that can only be lived and lived through the experiences that I have through all other aspects of my life. That is to say, when I am in a living engagement with you, and we are talking, and I see you as a full person, and not simply as a person that I can use or can do certain things for me, then that aspect, which I can never understand and turn you into an object, is coming from the depths of a divine level, which is the eternal you. And the eternal you of God is the totality of all possibilities when a person is living in that immediate engagement. Accordingly, for Buber, there was no possibility for him to live an organized religious life. He rejected a traditional religious life because he said that a traditional life turns the forms of religion and religious engagement into things, into objects, into outside aspects. He had a very interesting exchange of letters with Franz Rosenzweig. And Rosenzweig had become more of an observant Jew. And Rosenzweig confronts him and he says, Buber, why don't you observe the law? Why don't you engage in religious observance? And Buber says that I can only live in the immediacy of the religious moment when the religious moment is what he calls in German a gibot. when there's an immediate voice that I hear myself commanded by a person or a situation or a reality that's God's voice for me in that immediate moment. And the whole history of tradition, of relig- of halacha and tradition is simply outside that. That has become what he says is gazettes. That's just law and it means nothing to me. Rosenzweig responds in a very interesting way. He says that there are moments in our life that encapsulate powerful moments. But we don't always live at the height of religious and human experience. But if these moments are powerful, if these moments are central, we can re-engage them. We can enter into them again, and they can again reveal their original core. So he says, I agree with you that not at all moments is the organized religious life a life of immediate high engagement. But these moments reflect that. And so if you enter those moments, they perhaps can reveal from within that core. That was Buber's actually great insight into the biblical text. And we'll take a look in a second here On number six, where he's talking about the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He says, if the Ten Commandments mean anything as an event in Scripture, they represent a moment of speech, a moment in which people heard a living voice, a claim, thou shalt do X, you shall not do this, and if you hear the decalogue correctly or you hear any part of scripture correctly you will hear that voice making a claim upon you if scripture is simply a series of words then it has fallen into an it object now Buber believed that Judaism doesn't hold the entire truth of these great moments that's why From the beginning, he studied Christian mysticism. He studied um, uh, Chinese narratives. He wrote a book on Chinese narratives. He did a work on the Finnish Kalevala. And he did studies on Hasidic masters. Why? Because he says there are certain moments in great literature that have captured high-point moments in the human experience. And we who live at a low level of spiritual life can re-engage these texts if we listen to them as a vow making a claim upon us. We can once again come in contact with something that we've forgotten, something that we have distanced ourselves from. So his lifelong engagement with scripture was again to say, can you hear that voice in that text? Can you hear the living claim made upon you the same way as you can hear the claim of a human being speaking to you directly? Let's take a look at number seven. Here we see Buber now speaking about the totality of the way God and people interact. He's not making a distinction between there's God out there There's people here, there's religious experience, there's ethical experience. He's bringing them all together under the totality of the immediacy of a living moment. Listen to this the voice that he speaks now in a a text that he spoke in the 1930s on Israel and the world. God speaks to every person through the life which he gives him again and again. Therefore, a person can only answer God with the whole of life. With the way in which he lives this given life. Jewish teaching of the wholeness of life is the other side of the Jewish teaching of the unity of God. In other words, if Judaism has any special quality for him, it's because it itself is revealing the claim of existence. It is a kind of system or series of texts which help us return ourselves to a consciousness and experience of the world as making a claim upon them. Because God bestows not only spirit on the person, but the whole of his existence, man can fulfill the obligations of his partnership with God by no spiritual attitude, no worship, no sacred upper story, etc., only the immediate commitment of one's life in the immediacy uh, of the moment. And then he speaks now in the next text, because now he's saying there is not a one-time revelation. There's not just revelation that appears at Sinai. If God is real, which is to say that the world is constantly making a claim upon me, and it always makes a claim upon me through persons, through the world of nature, through all kinds of objects, or I can shut my eyes and it doesn't make a claim, if that's making a claim, there's not a one-time revelation that is found only in one text and only at Sinai. Sinai becomes the symbol for every eruption of the possibility of the truth of being called. The voice that says you. In other words, I can look at you and I say you. So if you hear that, You are being claimed at a human level by that thou that's coming out of the depths of existence. Because if I can really say you to you, it's coming from a deep level in which I'm not turning you into an object. And if I can respond to anything in this world, and it's a radical statement that he was making, that this is the height of religious life. The height of religious life is living in immediacy, and it's only in those moments, he says, that I know what my ethical duty is. That I know, because if I respond to you as a person, as a full presence, with the knowledge that I have of you, that relationship will establish a unique set of Ten Commandments. It will establish a law. In other words, what the Sinai represents is happening at every moment if that moment becomes actual and real. So he says, this is the eternal revelation which is present in the here and now. This is the key thing, the here and now. It's not then, and it's not to happen in the future. If religion is real, it's in the here and now, he says, in this immediate moment. And this is the eternal revelation, Sinai is always happening. Jewish mystics have that attitude too, and we can talk about this later in the discussion period of this ongoing, continuous presence of God. But there is a certain paradigm of Sinai. What he is saying is that Sinai becomes a paradigm in Scripture for the claim that existence can have upon me. And it continues to have a claim upon me, and therefore religious life can never be boiled down to a set of laws or a set of traditions. Or if they are boiled down to that, they have to constantly be erupted from within by my ability to risk the claim that you or the the, obj, the thing in the world is making upon me. I know or be, do not believe in any revelation that is not the same in its primal phenomenon, that is not this eruption of divine presence that either comes to me as something real and therefore it makes a total claim because then it's a vow. It says you to me. I have to respond and I have to know what to do in that moment. And you all know those moments. In other words, what religion tries to do is to capture what... Let's think of a moment that you have with a friend or the moment that you first fell in love. When you have that person make the claim or you truly listen to your son or your daughter or to your spouse, or you enter into a friendship, that moment in which that other becomes that you claim upon me and I truly listen, I develop an oral tradition. I develop an implicit set of laws and traditions. I have to act this way towards this person to sustain that relationship if I pull back and treat that person as an it I am sinning. That's what a chet, and that's what a sin would mean for Buber as a religious humanist. Because I have an intuitive sense of what the halakha is for each individual. If I engage that person in a true moment and those moments can be in business, those moments can be in study, they can be in personal relationship but each of those moments have a different kind of halakha for Buber. Because you have to understand that Buber is not going to speak as a traditional person. We'll see that when we come to Rabbi Soloveitcher or, or, or Heschel. But he's saying that revelation is that immediate, I, I'm, I'm transfixed. There is this fear and trembling that happens like at Sinai. Sinai is representing in a paradigm of a cultural historical moment what I can experience and what you can experience at every moment of renewing your friendship. That's why he will say that this is is what is turning. In In the book, I and Thou, he reinterprets many religious terms in terms of this thought of dialogue. So when he talks about what we're coming to the season of teshuva, of repentance, what does that mean in this context? It means turning the spirit of your consciousness to face what's addressing you. That's not something that one simply does once, but it's done repeatedly every day, as even the rabbis would say. But that is, it's a turning of consciousness. It's not just turning back to a certain path. It's turning to what is making a claim so that I risk that possibility of what the halacha or the law would be to me at that moment, right? So I live with many different kinds of revelatory possibilities. That, for him, is not a cheapening of the language of revelation, which other thinkers might say it's a cheapening, but it's a heightening, because it means that God is alive. God is alive in the moment. And I, can't gra- I don't grab God, but what I grab is the claim that's made upon me by another person. That I engage the world as a person and not as an it. Look at this last one. He says, God is incomprehensible, but he can be known through a bond of mutual relationship. That's a key phrase, mutual relationship. It's a different kind of knowing. It's the knowing of intimacy between friends. It's the knowing of intimacy in a therapeutic relationship or in a love relationship. It's the moment where there is a back and forth, a connection. That's when he said, remember, when he's coming down the mountain. He says, I touch the tree and there's a vibrancy that happens that embraces me. And when I touch that, I embrace it. And that's the core of what he's saying of the I and thou. I say, Thou to you, and I look at you, you become part of this world of my totality. It's not like I'm here and you're there. We are part of a oneness of mutual relationship. But the mutuality means there is a back and forth of claim. So I don't have a one time halacha. Your claim is that you're not listening to me. Hear me this way. Say it that way. And I have to adjust. And then I develop a series of rituals of how do I turn that relationship into something holy. So he's not concerned with the big picture of Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. They all encode these powerful moments for him. Now, obviously for Buber, he's a quintessential Jew. And his fundamental language is Jewish. And so the most powerful insights that he has, he teaches the Bible, he does the Hasidic narratives. And by the way, these were so powerful even outside. Many of you have probably heard of the great novelist Hermann Hesse. Hermann Hesse twice recommended Buber's Tales of the Hasidim to the Nobel Committee for Literature. Because he said, these, this, this is the voice of what it means to be a human being. And one hears that, one is renewed. Because For Buber, and for all those at the turn of the century, at the end of the century, of the 19th century, 20th, the issue was to transform one's religious life. Not the dead formalism, which they saw, which Buber had seen in his early life uh, at a certain point, or the formalism of religion, or the technology of everyday life, but how can life be filled with actual meaning? Then he says, man, human being, he says, das man, he says, man, cannot be like unto God. You can't, there's no imitation of God. There's no imitatio dei. There's not be be like me. He says, but with all the inadequacy of each of his days, he can follow God at all times. Because for him, God is is not just a God who reveals once or creates the world and then is removed. But if God is real, and that's a key term for buber, If God is real, then actual life is real. It's this actuality. It's what later existentialists would call authentic living. I live in the immediacy of authentic living because I'm engaged with it. They're using the capacity of the particular day. Right? Right? You have to know my Yelid Yom, says in the Book of Proverbs. You have to know what the day will give birth to. And that day makes a claim. And he has to use the capacity of that day to the full. He has done enough. This is not a mere act of faith. It is entering into the life that has to be lived on that day with all the act of fullness of a created person. And here you heard the word faith. For him, Emunah, and here Buber writes, has a very famous book which he calls Two Types of Faith, when he tries to distinguish between Judaism and Christianity, or Paul. In, Christi- in the Bible, the word for faith is emuna, emuna, right? I'll define it in a second. In the New Testament, Paul uses the word pistis, which means faith in something not yet known or experienced. It's a suspension. He says, what is the difference between Moses and Paul, says Buber in the two types of faith. What is the difference between emuna and the Greek word pistis? The difference is that emunah, as here, means relying and risking and standing firm. He takes the word amen and emunah in the literal sense, and that's how he interprets it in and Thou. Emunah is not I have this leap into some possibility that I don't know. It means I risk standing firm in what's being revealed to me at this moment. If there is a munafa Buber, it's this particular moment, the life that's lived on this day with the act of fullness of a creative person. I remember once one of my teachers who got his PhD um, with, uh, with Buber, and I remember once we were talking, and he confirmed this feeling. It seems like a human being can't live this way. Right? But he said, he said Buber tried. This was the great risk. Otherwise, one lives falsely for Buber. One lives in the I and the it world. And as long as we're talking about I and it, it's very, it's very interesting. The it, uh, in the 1920s, this is just in parentheses because that, Buber developed a whole psychological or psychoanalytic theory. In which what, what Freud later called id is the s the it ich s the I it that was the id and Rilke's mistress I'm sure you've heard of, uh, of the great poet Rilke with uh, Lou Andreas Salome who also was the mistress of Nietzsche and many other great uh, people she came to Buber in the 1920s and she begs him. Don't publish your discussion of I, you, I, it, eternal thou, other kinds of issues because Freud's theory is just beginning to make it. It's delicate and Buba withdrew it. But his whole schema of the it world, the you world, and the divine world that we engage in this moment is also a deep psychological theory of living engagement. He never fully developed that, or he has uh, certain discussions they later had um, with Carl Rogers um, at the Washington Psychiatric uh, Institute, but he doesn't fully develop that theory. Having uh, said that, let me just uh, conclude right now with a, another text. Um, I don't have it right here here in front of me, it's probably in the book, so let me just tell you what that text is and then um, we can uh, open up for questions. This issue of the person, this issue of isolation or the person, near the end of his life, Buber wrote again a very interesting autobiographical fragment. He says, what do you prefer in your life, or he says to himself, What do I prefer, books or persons? He said, well, when I was younger, I preferred a book. A book has an ideal form. It has an ideal structure of language. It unfolds in a certain sequence, in a certain semantics of words. I can follow it. I can stand above it and look at it and read from it. And human beings, they're filled with tribulation. Words are broken. Words are fragmentary. People don't always say what they mean. People disappoint. People misspeak. And life is broken. And then he says, but I learned more from that brokenness and trying to engage in the brokenness than standing apart from a book as if it was an object outside with an ideal form and that living speech this living speech thinking of i you i do you hear me can i speak to you can you can i address you that brokenness where people misunderstand break promises fight have misunderstandings he says that's where the core of life is and then he says So then, this is the last thing he says. It's one of the last things he wrote. He says, so now do this thought experiment. Imagine yourself on your deathbed. And you have a book. And you reflect on the book. And you reflect on all the things you learn from the book. And what would you rather have at the last moment? The book in your hand or a warm hand? I came out of the womb, he says, with a hand touching mine. And I would like to die that way. So here you see at the end of his life, he makes this statement of the power of relationship, the power of mutuality, the power of living engagement, which doesn't mean that it's all hunky-dory. Right? It doesn't mean that it's one easy flow of mutuality. The I and thou only refers to what is the attitude that I address the world. What is, In other words, I can go up and down. But I have to make a choice, he says. What is my scale of priorities? Is my scale of priorities to want to recapture the thou world after it's been broken? And how fast can I turn back to that? It's not as if... I don't fall into the it world. It's not that I don't fall into fragments and misunderstandings. But he said, the choice you have to make is whether you make, and this is the phrase he used, do you choose to make the dialogical primary? When I first heard that, that made a huge impact upon my life. To make the dialogical primary. That that means that life throws all kinds of things, this and that, But choosing to make it primary means that in my freedom, and here Buber speaks as a classic existentialist, in my freedom as a human being, I can constantly decide again and again whether that will be the primary thing in my life or I will take the easy way out and deal with you on the way that I knew you in the past or the way I want to use you in the future and the way that makes life have less resistance it's the life of resistance and brokenness and fragments which is the life of the hand so if I and thou, mean, I, thou means anything it means an attitude in which we face another face that's why the issue of the face is primary for Buber the face and the voice and the attitude that one has towards existence, and that that will produce the halakha of the moment and the rituals that I will engage in to make that relationship sacred. For Buber, that is where God erupts into realness, actuality, or meaningfulness in his terms. For me to close a deaf ear to that would be to turn God into an idol. And if anything, what Buber wants to do is to engage the living God. We'll talk about it. Thank you. <laughs> so, so any kind of questions on things I said or didn't say or you have some critical thoughts? Yes. Uh, to what extent did Buber from Germany? and the chapter Shoah uh, influenced his thinking on i You have to understand that he, had, he did I-Thou in the 20s, but I can give you two very powerful, two powerful uh, vignettes. Buber introduced into Germany what was called Jewish study as spiritual resistance. He developed in the 1920s, and the early 30s, a thing that they, was known in those days as Bibel Bibelesen. He went around the various towns and taught Bible. He taught Jew, Jewish texts, why? Because what he wanted to do was to give an inner resistance to the assimilated German Jew to come in contact with the nobility of the human spirit and the nobility of the thou in the very shadow of the demonic laws of since afternoon. And we have a number of cases in which he gave various teachings with all the strategies that we know from Jews even in the Roman period of how you speak in a certain way even when the enemy is right there watching you and he provided a form of spiritual resistance. So he, the old Shokan books, which he was very much engaged in, produced studies of the book of Echa, of Lamentations, of the book of Psalms, and various other books whose whole purpose was to allow a person through the great texts of scripture, and then also he did some texts from Midrash on the suffering God, to remember that the Nazis don't define humanity, and that although one is being imposed upon, there is a possibility to have an inner resistance. So he, I, thou, through text, become a form of spiritual resistance. The second moment was um, in the 1950s. Uh, when he comes to America, and he spoke at the Jewish Theological Seminary, and he spoke at the University of Chicago, And people asked him this very question. And he didn't try to give any trite answer. And he simply said, one simply has to wait in hope. One has to wait in hope, keeping the dialogical possibility that the hidden concealed God, who had been experienced, can again be experienced. In a way that will make a claim upon one's life, It didn't go beyond that. One has to live in living, hopeful anticipation with those things primary, so that the God who is mistater and he wrote a God who is a hiding God who is not present, one waits that with spiritual courage. And that's all he. Knows. That's all he says. But it's a lot. Yeah.
0: What do you think Martin Buber would think about the way we communicate nowadays?
1: Everybody talks to each other with email, no voice, no emotion, no... Right, so the question is, what would Buber say about... Well, I, for him... Look, the, there are technical parts of culture which means that people don't engage in a living encounter. I still remember, because uh, my teachers were of that generation, it was before people had even phone calls, because phone calls were considered to be... My teachers, believe this or not, this was in the 60s from that time, they used, because in Germany, people would send mail. Would, mail would be delivered three or four times a day. Mm-hmm. And it would be a personal communication, written out. Mm-hmm. And I remember once at a faculty meeting, in the old days, someone said, will you, can you, I, I will write you a note, hand, they were handing notes to each other. The... For for Buber, the danger of these forms is not... I don't know how Buber would say about what things would smooth out certain technical things. Given the fact that there's a lot of things that can be handled more easily, Buber would say that one has to be able to have a person in mind, in presence, and the more that one can do that, the better. The danger is this mindless separation that one simply shoots off an email that can go anywhere and that one doesn't um, uh, have that in mind. Just so you can think about this from a rabbinic point of view, um, it's a very, it's a rabbinic uh, teaching from antiquity that when one delivers a teaching in the name of your teacher, you have to have your teacher's face in front of you. Right. So, the comparison would simply it would be that in all of these things, even if we're sort of thrown into these instrumental relations, one has to try as hard as possible to have that full presence of the other person before one's face when one is doing that because not, not all emails are alike. Yes, please. Nice and loud.
0: My question is about um, you mentioned the revelatory possibilities of the relationship, and that there's like a living halacha between the people, or when you're experiencing yeah. like that. Where does the knowledge of that, that, that living halacha, that, that, um, where does it come from? Like psychologically, does it just come into our minds? Is, is there any?
1: room Look, for a, our a, a person, a person is a person grows up with an education. You grow up with all kinds of values. But what Bubu is trying to emphasize is that if I truly face another person as a person, everything I know about their life will make a claim upon me. I can't avoid that. I have to respond to that. I have to speak to them and they speak back to me and then I figure out what to do. Now obviously, you're, not, you're never born with a blank slate. And you're already learning things from your parents and through education. But that doesn't mean you're done. Right, those things become sediments and possibilities but what he wanted to emphasize is and the, the reason I used that analogy was to say that it's not just an open ended I can do whatever I want every moment has a different kind of a claim it has its own claim upon me and I have to do this that and something else and that other person or that other situation may make me Take the risk. Buber used a very interesting phrase. It's called the narrow ridge. Right? Remember, Somerset Maugham talked about the razor's edge. The narrow ridge is a very pregnant metaphor. The narrow ridge is you can fall off. That the claim is very complicated. But we have to risk it at different moments. And as much as possible to become a large-hearted person, right? That's what philanthropy, in the original Greek sense, means you have to you have big soul. You have big, become magnanimous. You have to become big soul. You have to risk those possibilities rather than small-mindedness. The rabbis would either talk about you have this expanded consciousness, or a narrowness of consciousness. So, the question is how you address those moments. Does, uh, does Uber talk give us any, any method to do this sort of safely? Because to enter into an I thou relationship where you break down all the barriers, the ultimate of that is psychosis. When you lose the barriers between who is me and what is the rest of the world. So, how do you, it's not it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not, I don't merge into you, and you don't merge into me. If you notice in the text, I had I thou with a hyphen. The key word that I have not used this far is what Buber calls the Tzfischen Menschlich, the between. The between means, now you got it, the between means That there is in when I'm relating to you, you're not absorbed into me and I'm not sinking into you in a mystical or psychotic or any kind of ecstatic moment. We maintain our difference in relationship. That's what the I-thou is. The I-thou is that hyphen. It's the between. That's why he says, there's no I that's separate from the you. There's not even an I that's separate from the it. It's the way I make that moment happen. So that's this relating back and forth, this mutuality of responsibility. The between, for Buber, is a philosophical category, right? It's not just, you are, this is between us, like a secret between us. The between, if you use a philosophical term, is what he calls something ontic. It's something real, it's something actual. There is when we are talking to each other, if I'm communicating to you right now, there is a between that's, even if you're not speaking, right? There is a between that's real, that's connecting us. And that is preventing that sinking. Buber was against abs- falling into self-centered absorption. In I, Thou, he has a whole long section that's based on personal experiences. Against mystical experience because... You fall into self-centered absorption. You just become worshiper of your own eye. Or you sink into something else. That was his critique of, of certain forms of Vedanta, of, uh, of, of Hindu uh, thought. You sink into the other. He wants to maintain the difference. Because you are really you and I'm really me. But something else happens. And that's the ethical revelatory moment of the between. and that. Is it constantly happening and changing? Does it involve risk? Is it tiresome? Do I wish it never happened sometimes? Damn straight, right? But you have to understand, Buber is speaking in the highest ideal form. We do the best we can, right? But by placing that in front of us, he gives us a form of relating that affects us at every level of our life, nature, society, books, persons, and so on. Uh, I, I, does it also isn't don't you by maintaining the I, according to Buber, lose some of your own identity? By sharing it with Dao as, as a unity. And the reason, one reason why I asked you whether this reflected on his political understanding, he was a uh, Yuda Magnus uh, friend and co politician that talked about the dual uh, Israeli uh, country, and and, and uh, this would lose. That Blueberry used the language of the narrow ridge precisely in the Jewish Arab dialogue. He was a member with Magnus of uh, what was called Brichalom, Shalom, Which wanted to have a binational state in the 30s. Okay? He was under no illusions about the difficulty. He was under no illusions about the risk. But up to a certain point he kept trying to re-engage it. There were moments that he withdrew in despair. But it's a, ri- it's a risk. That's the narrow ridge, and it's risk. But the alternatives were something he also didn't, he didn't want to live with nationalism. He felt that nationalism was another dangerous form of social political behavior. And he wanted, as with the earlier form, of spiritual Zionism to live in the land in a totally transformed type of religious consciousness in which all the sources of Judaism would be renewed. It's like, and uh, he, look, there was no practice. He was very close to when he broke away from, from, um, uh, from, uh, from Herzl at that time. Right. But it, it, look, we don't know what the practical consequences would have been uh, but Buber cho- chose to come to Israel he chose to engage we know that he went through some very great despairing moments um, and it was very it was very his house was under siege um, in 48 so that but I can see the uh, you lose your identity by creating uh, that, it's some of your that you risk you risk putting yourself forward, but there's also an enhancement that comes back. Uh, yes. So, I, uh, so I, you know, you're, you're right, but it's not the end of the story. You, you, in other words, you risk placing yourself into a place of vulnerability. Yes. I
0: think we're going to wrap it up, so I'm
1: going
0: to ask a question. That oh. you your wife don't mind
1: has Oh. a uh, question. Well, <laughs> there's a question over there. Yeah. Your wife. Yes. Can i, I got to go home tonight. Let her uh, ask well, a question. I'll,
0: I'll let her ask I'll ask. She traveled with you all the way to Chicago There you go. Did you ask her the flight? <laughs> <laughs> okay, go ahead. It's more a comment than, than a question. Okay. I, I think that um, from a neurobiological point of view, the question about do you lose yourself by entering into dialogue, I think the neurobiologist really got, Ubered, got it right from the neurobiologist's point of view, which is when we see a person in pain, the pain centers in our brain light up as if we were in pain, but the overlap is not complete. So that it's like the brain knows the difference between self and other, but we take the other's pain into our, into our own self at the same time. So it's that delicate balance of knowing the difference between self and other, but still feeling the other and taking the other at the same time. That seems to be. And the other issue about that, the, um, the email versus eye contact, is that, again, neuroscientists are showing us that it's eye
1: contact
0: that allows to read other people, primarily eye contact and voice tone, all of which is about well female. So yes. there's a lot of problems so Good. My, so my question, which I think we will love to stop this evening, and I know we're gonna talk about salvation, we're gonna talk about Heschel. Uh, in my experience in the Jewish world, both of those individuals are still alive, their theology, their, uh, the, their innovations. Um, but I have to say that I don't see Boober. So where is Boober still alive in our tradition? Um, whether it's in a movement or in something else, or is it, or is he in a different place? <laughs> Does that make question
1: acceptable? Does he have a bottle?
0: I mean I read I, I hear about Boober stories of the the Tuscan and that's that's the only place that I see Boober, and I and I heard the lecture today and I tell you a little bit about Boober, but I but I don't see Boober anywhere else in the Jewish world.
1: At least the place the uh, little part of the, yeah, of the I, world i yeah. are uh, absolutely you're right. Buber in um, had incredibly on the assimilated Jewish world of Germany, on Christians in the 30s, uh, on certain kinds of Jews in Israel. He had a huge impact upon me and friends of mine part of the Jewish world in the 60s, more than the other in those was part of this regeneration movement. was a kind of re, we uh, <clears throat> renewed the Laird House, what later became the Chavura Chabor, movement, so we started of, that in Cambridge in the 60s, and that was an attempt to take that over. But the, so his impact was extremely, important, and there's one reason, in a certain sense, why you ask your question. Uber, in the end, for all this great power that he had, had a greater impact on the Christian world than the Jewish world, and precisely because he doesn't take over the symbols of the Jewish life. Um, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. in other words, he, he, for for all Mm -hmm. kinds of personal reasons, he could not embody and live out or speak to those forms. And so his voice could not have a continuing resonance in in the life of Jewish belief and practice and tradition. And that's the only place where Judaism is carried from one generation to the other. So it has nothing to do with the power of his ideas, whether his ideas could become, at any moment, erupt. But they don't have, they did their effect on the generation, my generation, in the 60s. And either, but they, but His impact on Israel is almost nil, and the impact elsewhere is, and his impact is much more common uh, in Protestant, even now, today, even that is But it's precisely because he didn't embody, or live, or make it possible to turn what he calls himself moment gods. He's a moment god, right? A look the he calls the moment gods. He tries to argue, and I am now, that there's something greater than the moment god. But in the end, um, his, his books don't provide a path through to that. And that's something very much worth thinking about. It's not, it's not an argument for living a halakhic, fully traditional Jewish life, but it's an argument for what are the carriers of Jewish ideas Jewish practice and even the power of this uh, in uh, you know, living Jewish